This week, Zixia and Palo Alto are on my nice list. As the Sage Communications News, to go IPO or not to go IPO, policy management in the cloud, of course, Juniper makes an acquisition, and shutting off FTP and Telnet, because they're always on my naughty list. All that and more on this edition of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Brought to you by IT Pro TV is an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. Access over 2,000 hours of up-to-date, high-quality video content live and on-demand via your Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, PC, mobile device, or their recently launched Apple TV app. Corporate and group pricing are available. And now through December 31st, if you purchase a premium annual membership, you'll get an additional three months on your first year. Visit itpro.tv forward slash enterprise security and use the code ES30 for a free seven-day trial and 30% off for life. Logarithms Netmon Freemium delivers real-time network visibility to quickly identify emerging threats in your IT environment. Netmon Freemium is a free commercial-grade network forensics and traffic analytics solution. You can use Netmon Freemium's powerful capabilities to search against all of observed network traffic, identify abnormal traffic patterns and application usage, and quickly analyze full packet captures. Take the first step towards real-time network visibility. Visit logarithm.com forward slash freemium to learn more and download it today. Welcome, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. This is episode 25, and it's December 8th for 2016. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, on this wonderful journey where we're going to tell you about the naughty and the nice security vendors in Enterprise Security. And we're, of course, broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. I'd like to introduce our special guest host for today, Don Pazette from ITPro.TV, who's been working in IT for over 18 years, training and hosting educational content for over 12 years. He's a certified trainer with many vendors, including Microsoft and Cisco. His combination of real-world experience, textbook knowledge, and a questionable sense of humor, I got one of those too, uh, have helped him entertain and educate thousands of people. Don, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Paul. Yes, and uh, we have a quick announcement about IT Pro TV. You guys are always uh, updating your course library, CompTIA, Security Plus, CEH, Version 9, Red Hat, Linux, uh, Computer Hacking, Forensics, Investigator, and so much more. You guys are doing an awesome job. Thank you. Yeah, it, you know, security is a ever-changing topic. So for a company like us, we have to constantly update it, and we have a lot of fun with it. So it really is a great opportunity to do that. And there's just no limit. A, a good IT security person is always learning, is what we say, and that's what we do. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so, oh, we're jumping right into your interview. Here I am thinking I'm all excited <laughs> about the stories, but we have a topic to discuss, uh, <clears throat> which is one that. I, John and I like touched on a little bit. We made some recommendations across the board for security professionals uh, to find training specifically t- for the enterprise. Uh, but what I want to talk with you about today, Don, which I think is a problem, 
uh, that we have in the industry is how to fill the IT security skills gap. And this kind of ties into the large demand that we see for IT security folks. Um, so, I, you know, my first question is, which security skills are lacking most in the enterprise today? And I'm sure in your position, you're probably paying close attention to this issue. Yeah, it's one we've actually had kind of a challenge addressing because the the biggest lack, in my opinion, is practical skills. That you, you, there's a ton of great certifications out there and great courses where people are learning fundamentals and theory. And and don't get me wrong, fundamentals and theory are important. You got to understand that as a foundation to build off of. But if you're going to get out there in the real world and be successful, you need to know how to do things, how to actually have some practical skill to apply. And with the security world, things change so fast; they change every day that you've really got to be passionate about it and get there and get involved and continue to learn things. So if you're not getting your feet wet with real applications, real skills, if you're not doing penetration tests and and actually performing some of the exploits that you've learned about, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So we find people that have have focused too much on fundamentals and theory and not turned it into something they can apply in their actual trade. And and this is hard for a lot of reasons. Uh, I liken it to my own experiences where I was interviewing for a position as a systems administrator with a focus in security. And they were interviewing, asking me about my general Linux and Unix knowledge. And they asked, Hey, have you ever, you know, used or set up NFS? And my response was, yeah, I have, I have it running at my house. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, I've got an NFS server and, you know, share files. It's great. Um, in, in that's in, so what are your thoughts on that on people setting up kind of their home labs to get experience? Sure. There's a there's a burden you have in the real world that you don't have in a lab. So we'll run with NFS as an example. So when you go and set that up, authentication with NFS is kind of a pain in the butt because yeah, big time. It, you have user ID mapping that has to happen and, and all those challenges. So now if I don't have some kind of centralized directory like a open LDAP deployment and I'm managing individual user accounts, I got to make sure their IDs match. Well, if I'm in a lab, I've got two computers. No big deal. I'll I'll make those IDs match. Mm -hmm. But if I've got 100 servers and I'm trying to spread that access across all these systems or or I'm deploying in the cloud where I'm I'm trying to real time respond and deploy cloud servers to to grow my, you know, auto scale a pool or whatever, I that's really hard to keep track of and really hard to use at any great volume. So, you've always got to think about that when you're working on something in your own personal lab or at home is say, all right, I know how to do this for one person could I turn around and do it for a thousand people? Mm. And what happens is people get out in the real world, they find out it's hard to do it for a thousand people and they cut corners. They say, you know what? Screw it. I'll make an NFS share. And uh, let me just, I'll just treat everybody as root or I'll give everybody read, write access and, and hope for the best. I'll back it up. That's interesting. I think that's why we run into a lot of the situations because it's that chicken and egg problem. I don't have the experience in the real world until I go into the real world. My experiences before that might be in a lab where I didn't have to worry about scalability and uptime and some of these real world problems that we run into. Authentication and authorization being, I think, one of the most challenging, especially when you get into mixed uh, environments of operating system and cloud versus on-premise. So, yeah, I definitely think that's a, an issue that, that needs to be addressed. And, you know, finding... In, so the other example I had, Don, was um, one of our sponsors and one of our other shows makes SAP security software. And it's hard to find people with SAP security experience because 
trying to go like not many people are like, hey, I'm going to go set up SAP in my house. Like I set up NFS and that was fun. Uh, but like setting up SAP, like that's not, a, it wasn't on my radar. I mean, it should be as pen testers today. So maybe it's a bad example, but we don't always have access to the resources and software that are in use in enterprises uh, as well, making it more challenging. It certainly does. And, and that's one area where the cloud is really starting to help us a lot is you're seeing more and more vendors where you go to their website and they'll have cloud-based labs that are, you know, it used to be you'd see like a YouTube video or some dumb animation on the website. Our, our product's great. But now it's take it for a test drive and you click a button and it takes you in a virtual environment and you can test drive it and, and run through it. Uh, you see vendors like um, SolarWinds, right? SolarWinds makes all sorts of network monitoring software and it's expensive. They're, they're, they're proud of their software. It costs a lot of money. You might not be able to deploy it yourself or you may just not have enough devices to monitor to see it. But you go to their site, they have an interactive demo you can go through and, and run through the whole system. It's it's pretty cool to see that and get your feet wet. But people need to be thinking that way is I, I've got to use some of the real tools. Um, you mentioned authentication. Well, I know I can set up a radius server and do centralized authentication. But when I go out in the real world, people aren't necessarily deploying radius the way they used to. Now they're doing things like uh, Cisco ACS or some of the IAM solutions from Amazon or other oh, types God. of solutions. Now you're bringing back memories of horror. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've got to you got to say like, all right, well, I understand Radius, which is this kind of textbook example of centralized authentication, but I need to understand some of the third party software that people are actually using in the real world. It's hard to learn that. There's yeah. not certifications on it because it's not so popular. Right. But it that, is. That, it's hard. That, I mean, I've set up radius for smaller projects and i was like oh yeah like cool i understand i even did that like on the job i was like oh let's set up a radius server for this small like localized instance and i get it right and then we went to implement uh this was working for university and so i think the first radius server i set up was so that uh administrators on the network could authenticate to all of the network devices so a very small set of users a very limited use case and then they said, well, Paul, you have experience with Radius, so, and it's working great. And, which it was probably working okay. I just gave the illusion that it was working great. And they're <laughs> like, yeah, now we want to implement a Radius server to handle authentication for the campus as a whole as part of the authentication to the wireless network. I was like, yeah, I could do that. And then I went to go set that up and I was like, holy crap, is this different? Like, there's so many different things that I had to play with. I had to integrate you now at the central LDAP directory. I had to take authentication from these different things that were using Radius, and they all did it in a slightly different manner. And it was it, 10 times harder uh, than doing that. So, And I've run into something similar doing like hardware tokens. Uh, if you've ever used RSA Secure ID tokens, they have the, the RSA security appliances that you can throw in, which at the end of the day, you interact with as a Radius server. And mm-hmm. so it it's technically radius, but behind it is a lot of extra RSA technology. And we used to use that so that when I would log into a router or switch, a firewall, I would have my username and password and I'd have my token ID number that I had to punch mm-hmm. in. So you have that level of security. So those skills aren't useless. They, they still come in, but they're being changed by these other vendors. So you've got to try and get experience to that. It's not realistic to say, I'm going to get trained in every security product that's out there. But mm-hmm. you try and pick the big ones, the popular ones. You might You might hate Cisco, but they're they're what's out there so we need to learn their products or uh you know you see juniper and palo alto and the other guys they're really uh, cisco's having to, to fight to stay on top but to try and learn every one of their products is difficult so when you go to work somewhere 
and you find out the products that are in place for your organization, you need to focus like a laser beam. You need to learn how to actually manage those particular products and don't get distracted by the other things that are out there until you've mastered what you've already got. So many people just deploy technology after technology after technology, and they're not making full use of what they've got. There's so many great tools out there, but you got to master what's already in place. Yeah, and I have similar experiences with Cisco equipment. You know, I'd set some stuff up at my house, and that was one thing, but actually doing it in the real world is totally different, right? There's a lot more uh, <laughs> variables, and the repercussions are very different, right? Taking down a router in, in the university could have massive repercussions for tens and thousands of users, uh, where at home, you know, you can just mess around uh, <laughs> at will. So, I, so what's the recommendation? Is it, you know, should uh, people also be focused on not just training and certification in any way they can get it, but also uh, what about internships and, and fellowships? Is that a, a, an avenue that you would recommend? Well, normally I would. Security, it's tough. It's hard to, to go to a company and say, hey, um, I, I'm not looking for you to pay me. But will you let me come in and watch what all of your security guys do? Mm. And, <laughs> and most of them, they're not going to let that fly. So it's very difficult to get that kind of experience that normally you have to come into the business, maybe not even as a security person, maybe as support desk or, or some kind of systems admin. And then you work with the security people and you move into that role, which it would be for people starting out. If you're not starting out, you've already got field experience. You've already been out there. And the odds are you can come in and implement solutions just because a company has a particular software product doesn't mean it's the best. So maybe it needs to be replaced with something you're already familiar with. We don't want to pick software just because it's something we're already familiar with, though. We want to make sure we're picking software because it's the best or the appliances that are the best for the need that we've got. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies have started outsourcing it and just saying, look, security is hard. So so let me just push that off on somebody else. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll go with a cloud solution or software as a service where we don't worry about it at all. And if you go that route, how do you know the cloud provider is actually maintaining the level of security that you need? So now it's not just the security tools that you've got, but it's the compliance and auditing tools to make sure that things are actually being done the way they're reported. It's it's challenging to cover all those bases. So the approach I always take is when I go to work somewhere, even if I'm not a security person, if I'm just a, a network admin, system admin, whatever – I start paying attention to all the systems I've got and at a minimum reading the hardening guides for them. Every vendor puts out hardening guides, uh, looking at the tools that are available. I, I'm a voracious reader. I read everything that I can get. So reading the manuals and the information on those products, finding out what they can do and finding out how they solve that, that kind of security solution for the environment and trying to locate areas that are missing and replace it. But that's all stuff that you don't learn in the classroom where you're learning about the fundamentals of something they can't teach you a specific product and you've got to ramp up to that really really fast so i don't know how frequently occurring this situation is but here at security weekly we actually had someone that was working for a university that did a fellowship with us and so the university and this person was working in either a department or a in the central it i forget which and said hey i applied for this and i'd like to do my fellowship with you and learn some security stuff and the university paid that person to come work for us for a while to acquire skills. And then there was probably some stipulation, I would imagine, that that person has to stay at the university for a while after that. But that was a great way, I thought. And I don't, like I said, I don't know how frequently occurring it is uh, that you have a job that will allow you to do a fellowship like that. Um, but that's, you know, that's a, a really cost effective way 
to get training. Even from the university's perspective, they still paid this person, but they didn't have to pay extra to get that person training. So uh, that's a, a good scenario. Again, I don't know if you've seen that uh, practice uh, more often than I have done. Uh, we, we've done it here in our company because we're, you know, we're, we, we do training. It's, it's what we like to see. But uh, it, it is a, a challenging thing to find out there in the real world. I think like for, your, for the uh, Security Weekly viewers out there, if they were to go and ask 10 companies for that kind of a role, nine of them wouldn't even return the call. But when you yeah. find one, a, a college or a university, they're a great, I mean, they're focused on learning. Uh, learning companies do that. Uh, some kind of like auditing companies, they'll usually do that too because they, they eventually need more people to go out and do those audits. So it's it's finding that that balance, finding the right company. And you might have to search around, but there is no substitute for hands-on training, actually getting that exposure and experience mm-hmm. on a large scale. It's just, that's that's the information you need. One of the, biggest gaps that I see today in security, Don, is actually with Windows Active Directory. And I think, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of very skilled people at Windows Active Directory. However, when I talk to people that do penetration tests, you know, they will do, uh, I don't know, 75 clients or 100 clients in a year. And they say, like, maybe once a quarter, there's a really difficult one to get into. And largely that stems from they've got an Active Directory person that not only can set things up and make things run, but do that securely as well. And I think that's a that's a real gap that we have in the skills today. And, and do you agree? And, and what resources do we have for, for folks? Yeah, there's a there's a double-edged sword when you deploy, deploy technologies with a graphical user interface, right? <laughs> that, that, mm-hmm. That's what I blame for all this, the GUI. If you have a GUI, you can hit next 15 times and you deploy that technology and it works. So you might feel like you're done and you walk away. And in the meantime, there's a lot of steps you haven't taken to secure that properly. The the Active Directory, they've designed that to be backwards compatible. Microsoft, because they're an enterprise company, they, they're pushing out software to businesses, they want to maintain that backwards compatibility. And it, as a result, they'll support old things. I mean, NT4 support just died a few years ago. And I don't mean the, the technical support side. I mean the, the actual protocol authentication side of it. And And so that stuff, it hangs around a while. And if you know about it, if you if you go in there and you take the time to say, all right, well, let me let me change these policy settings. Let me adjust these domain controllers. You can really tighten that down. And if people would just take the time to read the hardening guides that the vendors put out and and not just the vendors. So but then there's other organizations like NIST and the NSA and. I know the NSA is not necessarily in everybody's good, uh, not necessarily on the nice list, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, but they do put out some great guides that help you for securing your business to protect your systems and to make sure that they are secure. With the Active Directory, the biggest mistake I see people make is they assume that people outside of the network are bad and people inside of the network are good. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people inside the network aren't necessarily good. Well, and so the bad you, guy, I mean, the bad guys get on the inside of the network. And that's, we talked about this last week, Don, which is why it's on the tip of my brain, is that once a pen test or a bad guy gets in, they are primarily exploiting authentication, authorization, and trust between systems to essentially control the entire organization and gain access to everything and what we call completely own the organization right and we talked about all the technical things that can be done to prevent that and a lot of it is what you're saying right there's backwards compatibility things that ha- you have to go in and, and adjust settings and there's a lot of technical details that even after we ran the segment people are making me aware of of how to protect systems from mimi cats attacks and things like that so 
Yeah, and enterprises, it, it's tough to be a business that, uh, for example, you might have some document imaging software that only works in Internet Explorer 9 or 10. And so you know Internet Explorer 11 is out or you know that Internet Explorer sucks and you want to switch to Chrome, but but you can't because you've got this software that requires a particular version. It It happens. And so you're kind of left with trying to make the best of that situation. What can I do to protect the system? And you can do intrusion, uh, intrusion detection devices or intrusion prevention devices. You can do firewalls and host-based IPS. You can do all sorts of stuff. But at the end of the day, the attackers are moving faster than those software and those appliances are. So we've got to try and make sure that we're selecting software intelligently, that, that it's from companies that are dedicated and focused on security. We need products where they they design for security first and features second, not the other way around. Or mm-hmm. A lot of times you see features first, price second, security third. So we, we got to make sure that the companies are in line with our own view. Otherwise, we, we end up being on that news report next Monday where they say, such and such company leaks millions of customer records, and you don't want to be that person. You definitely don't want to be the one responsible for that. So that's the the challenge we all face. I think another area that certainly, in my estimation, lacks in in some security skills is web application security. And you know, I think there's two uh, facets of this, right? There's developers, uh, and then there's the security folks as well. And I think the problem is is kind of similar to IoT in some different areas where. We say web application security, but there's dozens and dozens of different technologies, all which could have a different security model that you apply to it. And I think there's a skills gap there in learning how to properly secure various web application platforms. You know, when it comes to web applications, uh, I, I used to work for a law firm and, and the attorneys had this funny saying that they said, uh, an attorney that represents themselves in court has a fool for a client. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of look at that with web application security. If if you're doing your own web application security, you're making a big mistake that we kind of have blinders on when it comes to looking at our own applications. And our development team, the dev team who's been in there creating that software, they have blinders on too. They're going to take certain steps like field and input validation, which is essential, and, and other steps to prevent SQL injection attacks and the things they know about, and they're going to feel it's secure. But there's always other things that they just haven't thought of. And so – You've really got to have a, a multi-pronged approach to it. You've got to have your own internal stuff that as you divide, design the web applications, you're designing them securely, but that you're also using third-party independent auditors to scan and check that software. You need to do some some red team, blue team kind of uh, auditing on those web applications. They're so vulnerable, and that's the way that these attackers get in, and the terrible part is that a hacker can penetrate a web application and you don't even know it. And they can be sitting there for months on end. Just look at any of the United States government websites where mm-hmm. they've been in there for months and months and months accessing data before somebody even notices. And it turns out that, oh, on one web page there was a field and they weren't validating the input right and, and, and cleaning it or sanitizing it. And, and we end up with this compromise. We just didn't even know about it. But it was going on all that time. You've got to have auditors in there looking at that. It costs money. But it needs to be just part of the development budget that you've got to plan for that. No, and I think it's a great point because even if, like, for me as a security professional, if I focus on the security of a specific web application in a large enterprise, there's likely other applications developed in different frameworks uh, that I'm not going to get to. And that's where I always end up saying, well, if you do have knowledge of one, that's great. But you're going to have to, like you said, Don, go to third parties to get that validation of those other, other frameworks. 
Yeah, and that that's another thing that you can't really practice at home. I can't I can't yeah. write an application and say, you know what, I'm I'm gonna hire some third party to come in and audit this application. I just wrote in my off time. It's just too much money. But but when you're out there in the real world, you get the chance to see that or, or get exposure to it. Um, that's one of the one of my uh, goals for next year is that I want to I want to film some content to actually show that process. So not not like certification training, but just say like here's here's how an external software audit or API audit goes and, and how, what they check for and what you do to react and correct and, and all that. Uh, it's such a critical thing, but it goes back to the the real world practical application of our skills. And it, it's not just learners that have that issue, but instructors, teachers, people like myself that have that issue too. We get in the habit of teaching these theories and not showing people something that can actually be done. And, and that's that's the big weakness that we have. The last one, and, and this was especially the case when I was working for a, a, a vendor in the industry, there was a difficult time finding malware analysis and malware reverse engineers. And I'm not sure if it's because a lot of it ties into forensics and there's like that line between forensics and security that's kind of blurry, but it's difficult to find people with, with those skills. And I'm pretty sure that's still the case uh, today. One of the challenges there is that um, a lot of companies don't like to disclose that they've had an incident. And so when they have a security incident, maybe they handle it completely properly, right? So that they follow all the necessary steps to make sure their customer data is secure and that everything's taken care of, but they don't want people talking about it. So the people that get real-world experience dealing with that incident are then not allowed to talk about it. So they're not allowed to share that information and exchange it. Um, there's some people that are, like uh, the big Target exploit that happened uh, a year, year or two ago. Mm-hmm. They have been really good about putting information out there, not not all the information, but a good bit of the information of here's what happened, here's how they got in, here's what we've done to kind of stop it, here's what we could have done to prevent it. And so we all get to learn from their mistake. But even then, it's still missing some of those technical details that would really help us to get an idea of what's going on. We can still be vulnerable to some of the same things that happened to them, and they're just they're not going to share that data because it starts to weaken their existing security, what's going on now. So that's, that's a really challenging thing to get through. But if we can keep a handle on all the exploits that are going on out there, the ones that we hear about, if we can find real information about what happened, we can take the steps to prevent it. And you're seeing a lot of companies now that are pushing the intelligent threat detection systems where they have a, a security center somewhere, a lab where they're they're paying attention to all the attacks going on on the Internet and communicating it to their software that runs in your deployment as fast as they can to block things. Even that is not usually fast enough in most cases. And there's so many different ones and they're not sharing information. If people would just share more information, a lot of these problems would start to go away. Oh, I, I agree. And I think, you know, threat intelligence, we've talked about on the show a lot. And it's interesting when we talk about malware reverse engineering. And it seems the people that have the skills are able to detect malware in their own environments and analyze it and make that process faster than trying to aggregate threat detection, uh, threat intelligence fees, rather, and figure out how the malware is working and then somehow match that to other systems in behavior in their own network and systems. So, um, I, you know, I think that's a crucial uh, skill, uh, which is interesting to see how that uh, progresses. So, Don, you're going to stick around and be the guest host for this episode in the absence <laughs> of, uh, of John Strand. And Don is going to help me go through the enterprise security news for this week. 
So, Don, thank you very much for your insights on training and, and bridging the skills gap. And we're going to take a short break and come right back. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. I'm, of course, still your host, Paul Asadorian. Joined by Don Pizzette, our guest host from ITPro.TV. Don, are you excited about the news this week? Because I'm excited. Yeah, a lot of neat stuff. It's almost like uh, Christmas came early this year. <laughs> I was watching that uh, the Santa Claus movie with Tim Allen, uh, <laughs> where he's you know walking down the street and he's like, oh, naughty, nice. And then he's like, Veronica, very nice. And she has like some snide remark for him. My first two stories are in the realm of like like very nice. I've I found some things like I would actually use that. In fact, my first comment on the first story here, Don, is I need this in my life. Like I need this. Uh, Zixia has delivered what they call unprecedented visibility into virtual data center traffic. And when you read that, you think, oh my God, this is going to be like this horrible marketing spiel and we're not going to know exactly what it does. But they said that the Zixia Cloud Lens is a packet processor that can be deployed in a virtual infrastructure to aggregate, filter, deduplicate, and distribute virtual traffic to security and performance monitoring tools such as intrusion, protection, detection, or a data loss prevention system. I'm not sure how I feel about the data loss prevention system, but I need this technology in my life. I think this is the virtual span port that we need in the cloud so that we can do security in the cloud like we do on-premise. I, I, again, I need this in my life. Yeah, and, and with more people moving out into virtual data centers, so like if you've deployed all your infrastructure in Amazon Web Services, right, and, and we do a, a remote span, we're, we're effectively doubling our bandwidth cost because, you, you know, you pay per gigabit, and if we're mm-hmm. cloning that gig and sending it back out again so we can monitor it somewhere else, it gets expensive. So what, what ICSI is trying to achieve here is, hey, we can collect that data right there in AWS or whichever data center we've got. You can deduplicate it so you're not having to send duplicate packets and you can cut out some of the payload that's not necessary, shrink that data down, and now you've got what's left that's the, the important part to analyze and look at. That's a, a valuable thing that when we're giving up that control to a, a data center like that, we can get some of that control back. Yeah, and, and those that have gotten like the gigantic bill from Amazon <laughs> AWS... You want to, it is Ixia, Ixia. I said Zixia for some reason. I don't know why. Because I like to say things wrong. In fact, I think when you were on Hack Naked TV, I said your name wrong, Don. Oh, that's all right. I got a, I've got a short name that's hard to say. So yeah, I got a long name that's hard to say. I called you like Don Pretzel or something. We we joke about that here in the studio. <laughs> Terrible pronouncing things. You think after eleven years, I'd be better at it. Um, so uh, Palo Alto had not so much of an announcement, but the reason I liked this is because they talked about how they integrate with threat intelligence and they integrate with Recorded Future is the vendor that they integrate with. And I don't think this is a new integration, but they kind of showcased how it all works. And, you know, I started reading the beginning. I'm like, yeah, that sounds interesting. And then as I read down the article, there were screenshots and they're like, this is what it looks like. So if you're in Palo Alto's interface, you can right click and you can say, hey, show me the, I forget what they said, the card from Recorded Future on this IP address. And then it shows you like how Recorded Future ranks this IP. Is it very bad? Is it on the naughty list, right? To go with our theme of naughty or nice on this show. Um, is it on the naughty list? And then it gives you all these things about that IP address so that you can make more informed decisions. These are the types of integrations that I like to see. It's also the type of presentation in marketing materials that I like to see. I could actually see how it worked. Like, more of this, please. 
It was great. And there's so many of these products where you go and they've got some cheesy flash animation or whatever that doesn't even show the products. You have no idea what it's going to be like to actually deploy it. But uh, but they, they actually show it. And and I appreciate the fact that Palo Alto said, hey, we're not going to try and create this from scratch. We're going to partner with somebody who's already doing a great job and just integrate it right into the product, which cuts down on the deployment uh, pain of getting yeah. something like that in place. And that that's super important. Absolutely. Um, in kind of interesting news, uh, SSH communications, who's, I mean, they've been around since the beginning of time. Uh, I always remember like the commercial SSH vendor, uh, they seem to have focused on managing, uh, credentials, managing keys, right? So they provide an infrastructure for that. They're downsizing. They just cut 25 jobs globally. My guess is that the PIM market is kind of taking over and gaining so much traction that some of these smaller players that were very niche, like SSH Communications, are having a tough time. Do you agree, Don? Or? Uh, they are. I, I had a hard time gauging the severity on this one because I couldn't find anywhere where they told me how many employees they actually have. I know I've, I've interviewed them in the past at some of the conventions we've covered, and and I know they, they've got a decent amount of employees, but if they... If they have 10,000 employees and they cut 25, it's not a big deal. They're, mm-hmm. they're probably doing okay. But if they have 50 employees and they cut 25, that's a real problem. It, it is tough to be somebody like them, especially them specifically, where most people think, hey, SSH, it's free. That, that's free. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they're a commercial entity that supports it. They've, they've got the guy who, who helped to, to found and create SSH is, is uh, uh, part of the company. And, and they, they've done a lot of consulting. And I feel like they're, kind of reining back on the consulting side of their business and focusing more on their product. Mm, we'll have good. to see where that goes. Yeah. and uh, But I think their technology is certainly important uh, in managing authentication, especially privileged access, is something that I've identified as previously kind of boring, right? But now, <laughs> when we look at the threat landscape, I, there is, uh, I think that technology is so much more important and um, um, I hope SSH Communications is successful, uh, and I want to see more people adopt uh, PIM and these technologies to manage that because I think it really cuts to the heart of the issue when it comes to security. Yeah, absolutely. And, and SSH in general has just been so useful for securing protocols that have no security, and, yes. and that technology is so essential. You hate to see an organization like that in trouble. I, I hope that's not the case. We'll, we'll see where that one, one kind of develops. So a uh, cybersecurity firm, Darktrace, um, downplayed rumors about considering an IPO. But get this. So they've taken about $90 million in funding. I think that's their total uh, investment that they've taken on. They claim a $500 million valuation, which is, okay, let's just be honest here. It's a little exaggerated. Maybe not even a little. I mean, I can't speak definitively about that. But if I had to guess, it, I would say that's a slightly exaggerated. And so my question is like, why would they need to IPO? Like if their product actually works and they're taking on 90 million and their, their valuation is 500, I mean, they should be selling it. I mean, maybe take another round to put more into sales. Um, but I'm not sure what the reason would be for an IPO, uh, except as a, a power play in the industry. I'm, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with Darktrace, Don? I am, you know, because when they first founded, they were, it was like this all-star movie cast, right? Mm-hmm. They had all sorts of, of really big names that were a part of the, the organization. And uh, you had, you know, former spies and agents and people like that. So it was kind of high visibility. Yeah. Now, um, sadly, sadly, one of their, one of their founders or one of their like primary mathematicians passed away. Yeah. That was just in the news. That was, that was not long ago, no, right? Just a couple of weeks yeah. back. Yeah. 
but uh, but with them, they, they they've done well for themselves. And and on the IPO side, the uh, uh, I, I can't remember her name, the, the the main representative for them. She came out and said they weren't planning on doing an IPO yeah. in 2017, so that they, they their, might be doing it later. That was their but, C, their CEO. Okay. Yeah. And uh, with wait, that stuff, what's her name? Hold on. Uh, find it, but you, you oh, never know. With great. Them, it's going to be a they, name. It's going to be a name that I can't pronounce. Uh, Poppy Gustafsson. 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 Well, there we go. <laughs> so pop, Poppy. So Poppy came out and said they're not going to do an IPO um, in, in 2017, maybe maybe 2018. Who knows? But maybe they're just doing one of those those end runs where they say, "Look, we need to keep our options open. We don't want to end up like." Um, Pebble smartwatch where they turn down a $750 million deal one year and the next year they're selling their assets for 50 millions mm-hmm. and they're, they're out of business. So um, it may be something like that. It, it could be a money grab. It could be that they are just super passionate about security and they want to do well financially, but they don't want to give up the company. They want to stay a part of it because it, it does have a bit of a history to it. Uh, it. It could be any number of things. I, I like to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that it's not just some kind of, of money grab, but it, it certainly could be. Absolutely. Uh, Tufin Orchestration Suite, uh, Network Security Policy Management, uh, is integrating with Palo Alto. Uh, so Palo Alto customers now can maximize both. And they say the orchestration orchestration suite even uh, is end-to-end change automation of network security policies across heterogeneous networks, including built-in risk analysis to proactively address policy violations. And when you kind of read into Tufin, you, they talk about this like single pane of glass, how uh, I get the problem, right? And I, when I worked at the university, in fact, uh, to go back to that experience, I had to manage multiple firewalls uh, and security devices. And when you made a rule change or some kind of policy change anywhere, whether it be on a router or whether it be in a traffic shaper, that could have unforeseen consequences, and many of us listening are shaking their heads, going, "Yes, I've, we've all made that change, right?" That you go, you always end up like leaving to go home after you make the change, and it doesn't break stuff horribly until the middle of the night when you get the phone call. And what Tufin's products are aimed to do is to let you visualize and see those changes. And be able to make decisions about the repercussions. And this may not be related to like network uptime. It could be related to security, right? I made a rule change, but the way I changed the flow of data, all of a sudden, all these systems are getting hacked into because, oops, I just opened up the floodgates by accident. And so I get the problem. I don't know if this is the best solution. If you look at some of their screen, and they had the, the animation, Don, that was the, you know, <laughs> here's how our product works with the robot in the spaceship and things like that, which is interesting. But they also had some screenshots, and it looks very confusing. And my concern is that when you get these dashboards and visualizations, that it's not really helping to, to solve this problem. It's just kind of making things more confusing. Well, this type of software, you know, not to isolate them, but really anybody in this class of software, it, it is what you make of it. And the the example that I always run into is where somebody's troubleshooting a problem and they say, well, you know what, let me let me weaken the security for a minute. I'll turn this off or I'll yes. turn that off and, and I'll fix the problem. And then they forget to turn something back on. So when you define your security policy in this type of software, it's just monitoring the system and looking for when it when it changes and if it changes it lets you know so it's more of i mean there is the security policy but then there's compliance to that policy that we're really checking and it comes down to how many platforms it supports so if it 
if it can check your Linux and Windows servers, but it can't check your Juniper routers, then it becomes a bit of a weakness. But if it can check all of those platforms and, and let you know the moment there's a change and even better yet, if it can remediate and undo that change, that software becomes very, very valuable to you. But if there's even one device in the network that it can't manage, now you've got a, a yeah. liability, you've got a weakness, and you've got to plan around that. No, that's some fantastic insights. And I, you know, it, it speaks to one of the things that I really like about security products when they do this is automatically allowing you to remediate the problem. And they talked about some of that in Recorded Future uh, and Palo Alto integration. And Tufin, I believe, in other uh, security policy orchestration vendors, right, do the same thing. They allow you to identify a problem and remediate it. And I, I think that's where I actually believe we need to go uh, in terms of applying security because our networks are so complex and changing more and more every day at a faster rate every day that this is where we need to go. So I definitely agree. Yeah, the one I worry about is you deploy a server out in AWS or Microsoft Azure or somewhere like that. You've now got a server running in a data center you've never even been to that you can't name a single employee that works there. Probably not. And, and so who all has access to that server? Who all has access to be able to potentially get in there and make a change and you don't even know about it? So by monitoring for changes like this, you can spot that that's happened and, and take action or at least be aware. It's, it's such a risk that we have with cloud deployments. And speaking of cloud deployments, uh, it was a nice segue into our, our next story um, of orchestrating all of your containers. And there's that whole meme about, you know, the asking of the uh, is Kubernetes and, and all of that stuff, which the whole thing still makes my head spin. I'm, I'm getting a little better with it, and there's going to be more of a focus on it, you know, here in the show uh, and in our own research. But Juniper Networks actually acquired AppFormix, and AppFormix uh, applies machine learning technology redefines telemetry and operations management across software-defined infrastructures and application software layers. And when you read that, you're like, wow, what does that mean? And it kind of reminds me of that line from the movie where Will Ferrell is the the figure skater, the figure skater movie, where he's like, my lady lumps. He's like, I don't even know what that means. And Will Ferrell's like, no one knows what it means, but it's provocative. That's a lot of what we read here on the show, Don, is we don't know what it means, but it sounds good and is provocative, and therefore who, people who should knew, buy the product. Who knew that Blades of Glory Blades was of such Glory. a uh, network security lesson? Imagine <laughs> that. We tied in Blades of Glory to this show. Um, so you need org- orchestration to manage all of your containers, and AppFormix seems to be like another layer on top of your orchestration like OpenStack or Kubernetes to give you more orchestration in management. I mean, yeah, my brain, my brain still hurts. So, you know, I, I, I love containers. I, I love Docker, the, uh, like, uh, Red Hat Atomic, th- those kind of deployments that are happening. They, they make things so much easier and so much more consistent. So I, I super see the benefit of that, mm. but you've got so many different layers of virtualization now. So if yes. I'm creating a, a containerized application and I throw it on, uh, Amazon AWS or Microsoft Azure, when I throw it out there, I've got the container and its virtualized infrastructure. It's laying on top of whatever hypervisor that vendor is running. So um, AWS, I think, is built on KVM or Zen or one of those guys. Uh, and so it's laying on top of that. And then somewhere under the hood, there's real physical switches that we never even see. So when I'm monitoring port performance, what the hell am I even monitoring anymore? Am I right. monitoring the physical port or a VLAN or, or what? We, we don't even know. So having software that, that tries to make sense of that and present it to us, there, there's value there. 
but there's so much complexity. I, I, I haven't had a chance to, to mess with AppFormix on this, so I, I don't have, know how well it does. But it's such a complex thing to monitor that those guys, they're e- either mad geniuses or the product can't work. <laughs> yeah, hard, yeah, it's interesting to see where it'll go, right? Um, right. But it, it seems like in when we talk about containers and orchestration that there's a lot of planning and upfront to, to manage like multiple things. And I think that the reason why a lot of us are, are confused and, and having difficulty with it is because I think it requires a lot of planning ahead uh, and knowing what you want to deploy. And if people don't do that, there's really no like next, next, next finished kind of thing. You really need to map it out. And and I think that's why it's somewhat confusing to us and why we need more tools to help us manage it. But my concern is that the more tools we get, how complex is security going to be and how easy is it going to be for us to make a mistake? Yeah, at the same time though, I I would I would encourage people to get to containerized deployments as fast as you can because yeah. Trying to maintain a sandbox, a staging, a QC, a production environment, maintain four, five, even seven environments that are as close to identical as possible is near impossible. And so when that application is developed and then it moves into production, having bugs and vulnerabilities and exploits that you didn't see before, that happens. And and you need to see that ahead of time. When it's containerized, you know that that infrastructure is the same at each leg along that journey. So you want to get there as fast as you can, but you've got to make sure you're prepared for it. I, you know, third-party software can help. I think this is very similar to Tiger Woods' golf swing and my learning of <laughs> VI, right? And and here's where I really think the, the, the crux of the issue is, and I think it's going to get better. But Tiger Woods at one point knew that he had to change his golf swing, right? So he, But he knew that once he made changes to his technique that uh, his scores were going to be worse for a little while as he adjusted. But coming out of it on the back end, his scores were going to get higher and higher than before. And there's the same thing when I was learning VI. I was just explaining this to one of our production folks. You know, like I always use the arrow keys when I edited. And then I learned VI and I use HJKL to navigate. And my hand doesn't have to go back and forth between the arrow keys. So I was more efficient. Now, it took me a while to get used to using HJKL to navigate in VI. But once I learned it, I could then type faster. So in faster than before. And that's the same thing, I think, when we talk about containers and learning orchestration. In the beginning, it's going to be daunting. You're not going to be as efficient. You're going to make some mistakes. But coming out of the back end, you're going to be so much more efficient and to be able to apply security much more easily uh, and DevOps and the whole thing. And you're going to be beyond and above and beyond where you were before. I think that's the same situation. Yeah, as long as you steer clear of the Waffle House waitresses, you'll be in business. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Good point. Uh, on my naughty list, <clears throat> HP is turning off FTP and Telnet uh, to network printers uh, by default now. And I just, the optimist in me, whatever's left after I host a show with Jack Daniel, whatever's left of my optimism, could this be the path that leads us to salvation when it comes to IoT and the enterprise? Here's a big vendor like HP that's responsible for thousands, probably millions of devices across enterprises. And now they're turning off FTP and Telnet access to these systems by default. I think this is a great move. I think that the news headlines that IoT security has been making are starting to make some changes in some big vendors. So this is a, a good thing to have. The downside is, as we look at enterprises, uh, is you know how do you go back and turn this stuff off? What repercussions does it have? And what about all those devices that aren't HP? 
Yeah, and I, I'm going to have to be the jaded negative person on this one because I look at it as, oh, look, they're just now turning off Telnet. It's 2016. They should have turned off Telnet 16 years ago. Right. And, uh, and you know, to, to do it now, it's just so, so late in the game. And, well, it's very and reactionary. It's, not- it's reactionary to what's happening in the headlines. It begs the question, what do you need FTP or Telnet on your printer for anymore? That's right. And and even without FTP and Telnet, it's not like the other printing protocols are that much more secure, that a lot of these have font exploits and things that are a part of them that are, are fully accessible through PCL or, or just the CUPS system that we have for Unix, which is is improved a lot by organizations like Apple that have done a lot of source mm-hmm. contributions to it, but it's still not perfect. So having having encryption available between your device and the printer, like I've seen printers that support IPsec. I've seen plenty of ones that don't. So mm-hmm. having having no layer two or layer three protection on those systems, it, it still makes them weak. So shutting off Telnet, shutting off FTP, yeah, it's a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. They're, they're focused on features first, security second, yeah. and, and that's the problem with a lot of these mm-hmm. vendors. Baby steps, Don. Baby steps. <laughs> <laughs> so, Don, you, of course, um, have some great uh, training options uh, at ITPro.tv, uh, uh, several of which you know we, we've talked about and talked about topics that uh, folks can go subscribe and, uh, and, and get training at a low monthly cost. I think if you're an IT professional, whether security or not, IT professional, it behooves you to have a subscription to itpro.tv to keep your skills sharp. So I, I applaud your efforts and what you're doing. I like your content a lot, and uh, I encourage people to subscribe. I want to thank you for, for co-hosting the show with me today. Hey, it's no problem. I really appreciate being on here, and we're looking forward to 2017. My New Year's resolution is to push more hands-on practical seals. I don't want to be the person that just says a lot. I want to, I want to actually help people learn that stuff. So we've, we've lined up some great instructors at Yumi and Studio to help with that throughout 2017, and we hope to see you guys there. Awesome. Thanks so much, Don. 